Hey everybody, it has been a while, I apologize. I have not recorded a new episode in quite some time. I don't even remember the date of the last episode, and it's all on me. I just pretty much burned out. I just got into too many things and was busy and wasn't feeling the research and the drive to continue. And yeah, with some of these episodes that were very labor intensive, it just started to go downhill a little bit. And I started to get obsessed about who was listening and who was not listening and how many listens I was getting. It started to bum me out a little bit. But took some time off, obviously. And I went to a golf outing recently and an acquaintance there saw me and said, hey, when's the next episode coming out? And it kind of brought it all back. Like, wow, people actually listen to this. It's not just for fun, although that's what I'm going to try to make it again, just being for fun for me and hopefully educational and fun for everybody else. But it was nice to just see someone out in the real world that actually listens to the podcast on a pretty regular basis. And I really appreciated that. And it made me think maybe I should jump back into this. So thanks, Ted. I appreciate it. I hope you're listening. And this one is for you getting me back into this one. So finishing up on the Kennedy assassination. I know it's been a while since we talked about Kennedy. So if you need a refresher, go back and listen to those episodes. But this episode is the last in the Kennedy assassination series. This one is about the conspiracy theories or lack thereof. I'm going to do my best to debunk those conspiracies that you might see out there in the world and do the best I can to show that once again, Oswald did act alone. So without further ado, this is Curiosity Chronicles back again. I am your host, Brett Bilesma, and this is what I've been curious about lately. Before we get started, I have to, of course, point out that I did not do all of this research by myself. I do not have the means to do so. I do not have the time to do so. And I, as much as I regret to say it, don't have access to the primary sources, even though they are available if you go to the right places. But since I'm not in those places, I had to rely on other people doing the research and then I could read their work, collate it, and put it into this podcast pretty normal, basic stuff. That was the case for the other Kennedy episodes, and it's the case for this one. I'm drawing heavily on Vincent Bugliosi's book, Reclaiming History, as well as Gerald Posner's book, Case Closed. Those are pretty much my two main sources, and they are very, very thoroughly researched, but I don't have a lot of other sources right now because there's not a lot of anti-conspiracy books out there. But these two books are incredibly well-researched, they have all the pertinent details that I think are necessary, and there's a smattering of other sources that I looked into that help to corroborate, which is a tough word to say, what I have in these two books. So recommend you check them out if you're interested in this type of subject, but I tried to collate the important details into this episode, and I think it should be a good starting point for anybody who is anti-conspiracy, and I hope at the end of this episode... That's everybody that listens. So first off, before we get started on the Kennedy conspiracies, specifically, we need to talk about what a conspiracy is in general. 
just a quick overview, criminal conspiracy is simply two or more people getting together and agreeing to commit a crime. And when I say get together, I don't mean that they are meeting in person necessarily. It can be meeting in person, but it can also be, quote, meeting of the mind. Now, that's the start of a conspiracy, but really when it becomes a criminal activity, one person in that group must commit what's called an overt act to carry out the object of the conspiracy. And that overt act does not necessarily have to be illegal. So if you are in the conspiracy and your job is to buy gas for the getaway car, buying gas is not an illegal act. But because you are using it to complete the objectives of the conspiracy, let's say a bank robbery, that normally legal act becomes part of a conspiracy and you can be criminally charged. All members of a conspiracy are criminally responsible for all crimes committed by all co-conspirators. This was pointed out in the book by Vincent Bugliosi, and it's very important that he pointed that out because he was the prosecutor who got the conviction of Charles Manson for murder, and he did it heavily on the fact that Charles Manson co-conspirated with the actual murderers. Manson never actually murdered anybody, but he was charged with murder based on the fact that he was part of the conspiracy. So, Bugliosi knows what he's talking about. So, that's what a conspiracy is in general. So, let's talk about some of the conspiracies in the Kennedy assassination. Now, being that the Kennedy assassination is probably the most famous murder in the history of the United States, if not the world, most people have somewhat of an understanding of what went on. But even if you ask someone with just the most basic understanding, maybe they know nothing but this one little tidbit. What do you know about the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracy theories that go along with it? I feel like most people, if not all people, are going to mention the grassy knoll. So that's what I'm going to start with, and that's what I spend a good portion of the time on this episode because it is so ingrained in the public consciousness. So the grassy knoll refers to a patch of sloped lawn that is on the north side of Elm Street, and it's got a picket fence on it, and there's you know other features to it, but it's, it's mostly an open, grassy area. And it is located to the right front of where Kennedy was when he was struck by two bullets, by the two bullets. Now, most conspiracy theorists think that some, if not all, of the shots that struck Kennedy came from the grassy knoll. And mostly, they believe this based on eye and ear witness testimonies. Many people in the crowd claimed that they heard a shot coming from the grassy knoll. And not only that, after the assassination, there were police officers and I believe some secret service agents as well as part of the crowd that went running towards the grassy knoll as if they were chasing after somebody. Now, right off the bat, we can talk about ear witness testimony. Dealey Plaza is basically an echo chamber. And this was verified by the House Subcommittee on Assassinations, which I'm going to abbreviate for the rest of this episode as the HSCA, which is actually really not that, that much faster to say, but I will reference their work a lot in this episode. So the HSCA, they conducted an acoustic test in 1978 when they were doing their investigation. And they said in the report, quote, there are strong reverberations and echoes present in the plaza. 
end quote. And many witnesses the day of the assassination testified to the echoes and to the fact that they made it impossible to locate the shooter. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, even if there were no echoes, there are firearm experts that say it is hard to determine the location or even number of shots just by using your ears alone. Major General Julian Hatcher, who's the former director of the technical staff at the NRA, and Lieutenant Colonel Frank Jury, who's the former chief of the Firearms Identification Laboratory of New Jersey State Police, wrote a textbook called Firearms Investigation, Identification, and Evidence. And this is what they said in that textbook. Quote, It is extremely difficult to tell the direction by the sound of discharge of the firearm. End quote. And then later, Quote, little credence should be put in what anyone says about a shot or even the number of shots. These things coming upon him suddenly are generally extremely inaccurately recorded in his memory. So, ear witness accounts are not to be believed, and yet a good portion of conspiracy theories are based on witnesses who claim that there was a fourth or maybe more shots coming from the grassy knoll. Now, if that were true, then automatically there's a conspiracy because obviously there was a shooter coming from behind the president, who we know is Lee Harvey Oswald. And if there was a shooter from the front, unless there were two distinct assassination attempts that day, which is probably about a billion and one chance, then there had to be a conspiracy. So the grassy knoll is something that needs to be talked about. Now, Despite the unreliability of ear witnesses, it should also be pointed out that multiple studies have been done, with many witnesses being interviewed in these studies. One study, 172 witnesses heard three shots, and six heard four. Another study was 132 heard three shots, and again only six heard four. And a third study... 144 witnesses heard three shots and eight witnesses heard a fourth shot. So I understand that we need to take ear witness accounts with a grain of salt, like I just said. But at the same time, the vast majority of witnesses interviewed that were in Dealey Plaza only heard three shots. And we know for a fact, based on scientific evidence, from the sniper's nest in the Texas School Book Depository that Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots. So not a great start for the conspiracy theorists. Now, you don't get these numbers in books that you read written by conspiracy theorists like Jim Mars or Mark Lane. Mark Lane being the absolute... Yeah, never mind. I better not get started. This is just not something that gets told to you clearly in conspiracy books. You get told that there are witnesses that say there was a fourth shot, but you don't get to hear how many and how many other witnesses contradicted them. So if you pair the ear witnesses, which again can be unreliable, but you pair that with the physical evidence, and it seems fairly obvious right from the get-go that there were only three shots fired. And when it comes down to it, You can throw the ear witnesses right out the window if you want to get into a debate with me, let's say. And I can still point to the physical evidence. There is only 
physical concrete evidence that shows three shots and they all came from the Texas School Book Depository. So, many conspiracy theorists, because of all the things that I mentioned, still claim that there must have been a shooter on the grassy knoll because that's where police officers ran to after the shooting. And on the face of it, that makes sense. I'm not saying that there isn't conspiracy theories out there that don't make sense. There is a lot of things that I've heard before, even about the Kennedy assassination, made me scratch my head like, oh, wow, that's um, compelling. But when you look into things, you always find either evidence that contradicts it or no evidence at all. And that's the case again with the police running to the grassy knoll. That's what you hear about in these books by conspiracy authors. Oh, they ran to the grassy knoll. Obviously, that was a sign of someone there that was a part of the conspiracy. It's not the case. Listen to the testimony of Dallas Deputy Sheriff Luke Mooney. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, there is a lot of quoting in this episode. Because direct quotes convey the information the most clearly. But also, the direct quotes that I will quote throughout this episode are extremely important to the point of this episode. So there will be a lot of me just quoting either direct quotes from witnesses or direct quotes from reports of investigative bodies. Just bear with it. It is very important. So Luke Mooney, quote, We ran over into Dealey Plaza, crossed Elm, jumped over the wall of the embankment on what's now called the Grassy Knoll, and headed towards the railroad yards. At the time, it seemed to have been the most logical place to begin looking unless you had actually known from where the shots originated, which I didn't. End quote. So the police officer that started running towards the grassy knoll did not know where the shots came from. He just went to the most logical place, which, yes, was at that point the grassy knoll. But it does not give any evidence of a shooter or a conspirator at the grassy knoll. And it's not just Luke Mooney. Dallas police officer David V. Harkness, quote, I started searching behind the railroad yards, not because I thought shots had come from there, but because we were looking for somebody running, trying to get away, end quote. That would be the place, if there was a conspirator in Dealey Plaza, the most logical place for them to run would be the railroad yards behind the grassy knoll. So again, they didn't know anybody was at the grassy knoll, That wasn't the point of them running there. They were just going to what would be called the path of least resistance for escape. And one more, a witness at Dealey Plaza, a man named Charles Brame. Quote, they were running up to the top of that hill, it seemed to me, in almost sheep-like fashion, following somebody running up those steps. There was a policeman who ran up those steps also. Apparently people thought he was chasing something, which he certainly wasn't. There were no shots from that area but some of the people followed him anyway, end quote. Now, ear witness testimony and the police officers running towards the Grassy Knoll is not the only supposed evidence that Grassy Knoll proponents have. They also have the Polaroid taken by Mary Mormon. Mary Mormon was a witness at Dealey Plaza. She took a photograph. She would have been on the left side of the street, so the left side of the limousine. And she took a photograph using a Polaroid at about the exact moment that Kennedy was shot in the head. It's a very famous photograph. And obviously, given the content of the photographs, it's been heavily examined. 
Now, conspiracy theorists claim that the photograph, which I will like to point out, is from a 1963 or earlier edition Polaroid. It's not a high-definition camera like we have today. But conspiracy theorists have examined it ad nauseum and claim that the Polaroid shows a second shooter standing behind the stockade fence on the grassy knoll. Now it's time for me to debunk. This is my favorite part. The debunking, not just particular part. The HSCA. Now, I'm going to remind you that the House Subcommittee on Assassinations concluded in their report that there was a probable assassination and that there was probably a second shooter, something that I'm going to get to later, but it is in the HSCA's best interest to support a conspiracy, therefore they would, in their best interest, have evidence to support a second shooter. So, anything that the HSCA HSCA says that is anti-conspiracy, to me, holds more weight because it is going against that committee's best interest. Therefore, it seems to be more likely to be true. Let's put it that way. So the HSCA examines the photograph and they say, quote, it was not possible to determine the nature of the images with the naked eye. Enhancement attempts in the region of the retaining wall produced no significant increase in detail and no evidence of any human form, end quote. The HSCA photographic panel examined more than just Mary Mormon's photo. They examined any photo that could have contained a second shooter, any photo that was brought to their attention, let's put it that way. They said in their report, quote, we find no evidence to support the contention that there were other gunmen in the Dealey Plaza area, end quote. I apologize. I feel like I am stumbling over my words like a complete rookie. I am rusty, but I am going to do my best to lock it down. Anyway, no evidence photographically, according to the HSCA, to support a human form standing behind the stockade fence on the grassy knoll, or any other gunman in the Dealey Plaza area. That, to me, carries a lot of weight. So I've mentioned before that the HSCA concluded that there was a probable conspiracy, but they actually went beyond that. They said in the report that there was a, quote, 95% certainty that a fourth shot was fired from the grassy knoll, and thus a conspiracy. End quote. Now, I just got done telling you that they said there was no photographic evidence of a shooter on the grassy knoll. How could they then claim in their final report that there was a 95% certainty that there was a fourth shot from the grassy knoll? Seems contradictory. So let's talk about it. The HSCA agreed that there were three shots fired from the rear, the depository, that struck Kennedy and Connolly. The fourth shot theory was based off analysis of a static-filled Dictabelt recording. Now, a Dictabelt is an analog audio recording medium, and in this case, it was from the Dallas police. The Dallas police were using two channels, channel one for normal police business and channel two for traffic concerned with the motorcade. An unknown police motorcycle had its radio switch stuck in the on position 
and for about five minutes around the time of the assassination, everything in range of that microphone was accidentally recorded onto this dicta belt. So if that motorcycle was in Dealey Plaza, maybe the shots were recorded. Now this is when the dicta belt argument starts to break down. And this is a conspiracy theory that is heavily tied in with the grassy knoll, obviously, because it claims that it came the shot came from the grassy knoll. But you will hear conspiracy theorists talk about the dicta belt all the time. And in my understanding before I did the research for this episode, I had understood that the dicta belt had a recording that actually played sounds that could be construed as shots. So if it was really recording gunshots and you could hear four of them, it would be hard to debunk. That's not what happened. The dicta belt does not record any gunshots. Sound experts instead search the dicta belt for what's called inaudible impulse patterns. I don't even know what that means necessarily, but these are sound experts. They say they're a thing, and they claim that such patterns could indicate gunfire. And when they analyzed the dicta belt, they found several unusual impulse patterns. So then in 1978, when the HSCA was doing its investigation, they did an acoustical reconstruction in Dealey Plaza, and they fired a Carcano from both the depository and the knoll. And then the impulses, those inaudible impulses were created that were created at the reenactment were compared to the dicta belt impulses. So a lot of jargon there to dumb it down. They shot the weapons that were used in the assassination at the grassy knoll and the depository in 78 compared it to the dicta belt compared these inaudible impulses and said that there was a 50% chance there was a fourth shot based on how these inaudible impulse patterns matched up. And acoustically, that fourth shot was located at the grassy knoll. The HSCA then had Mark Weiss and Ernest Ashkenazi of Queens College further study what they had done, and they upped the probability to 95%. Now, at the, on the honestly like on the face of this like I'm, I'm I don't feel like it's that ridiculous like this this seems like sound scientific research and investigation but just kind of off the beaten path of what the normal person is aware can be done but at the same time it just it feels like a bit of a stretch and it's just hard to believe <laughs> I guess, but it breaks down even further. The committee had what they believe is proof of a fourth shot, but they have not been able to prove that the dicta belt recording was even located in Dealey Plaza. If you can match those two things up, impulses that seem to indicate a shot from a motorcycle recording in Dealey Plaza, that's pretty much concrete evidence that there was a conspiracy assuming you can prove the science of these inaudible impulse patterns so that was the next step for the committee prove that the microphone that was stuck in the on position was on a motorcycle in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination 
So on December 29, 1978, two days before the committee was scheduled to be done and complete their investigation and hand in the report, so to speak, H.B. McLean, an ex-Dallas police officer who was riding behind the vice president's limo, testified that his mic was often in the open position, but he could not say if it was open on the day of the assassination. So his mic often got stuck recording, but he had no knowledge of whether it was recording during the assassination. The committee took that as gospel. They said, good enough. We are going to report that the final report is McLean having the open mic. He was in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination, riding behind the vice president's limo. His mic was stuck in the open position and recorded the shots. The impulse patterns indicate that there were four shots and one of them came from the grassy knoll. Boom. Conspiracy. Now, it didn't take long after the HSCA's report was published for this Dictabelt recording investigative work to break down pretty much completely to the point where you can pretty much debunk the entire Grassy Knoll conspiracy theory altogether, at least based on the quote-unquote, most concrete evidence that conspiracy theorists have. McLean, after the report was issued, listened to the Dictabelt recording for the first time. Before he testified two days before the report was supposed to be published, he asked to hear the Dictabelt recording and was told by the committee that it was not important for him to listen to it, and he gave his testimony. After they published the report, he listened to it, and he immediately knew that it was not his microphone, and he's gone on record saying this. Immediately after the shots were fired, McLean raced off in his motorcycle with the presidential limousine. He went around the vice presidential limousine and took off through Dealey Plaza at high speed with the presidential limousine to the hospital, and photographic and eyewitness evidence supports McLean. So conspiracy theories, of course, conspiracy theorists, of course, do not want to be proven wrong, so they say, oh, McLean's misremembering. This isn't what happened. But eyewitnesses and photographic evidence back up McLean's story. Now, why is this important? Well, it's because sirens on Dallas police motorcycles were foot activated. The faster the motorcycle went, the louder the siren got. The Dictabelt recording has no sirens at all until over two minutes after this shooting happened, or the supposed shooting that they heard on the Dictabelt. So if the Dictabelt had been from McLean's motorcycle, or the mic that was attached to his motorcycle, there would have been sirens from the time of the shots until he arrived at the hospital. And that doesn't happen. Not only that, McLean does not hear any crowd noise on the Dictabelt, despite the fact that he testified that the crowd noise was so loud in Dealey Plaza before the gunfire that he had a hard time even hearing his own radio. Instead, what you hear on the Dictabelt is someone softly whistling nearby and a single toll of a bell, which there's nothing like that near Dealey Plaza. To further break it down, 
At the time McLean was speeding towards the hospital, the Dictabelt recording was of a motorcycle, but the motorcycle engine was idling, not racing at high speed down a highway in an emergency situation. Dallas Sheriff Jim Boyles, Boyles, excuse me, Bowles? Ooh, that's a rough last name. Bowles. We're going to go with Bowles. Sheriff Jim Bowles has pursued this Dictabelt recording investigative work for quite some time, and he has determined that the open mic was nowhere near Dealey Plaza, but it was instead at a trademark, on, on a motorcycle at the trademark, which was the destination of the president had the motorcade ended up uh, as as planned. So it seems almost without a doubt, I shouldn't even say almost, without a doubt, the Dictabelt recording was not in Dealey Plaza. So it could not possibly have recorded a fourth shot. Therefore, the 95% certainty of a conspiracy, which was based basically solely on this Dictabelt recording. And when I say that, I you'll hear more and more in this episode. Every other time the HSCA comes up, it's no evidence of a conspiracy, no evidence of this, no evidence of that. This was their main leg to stand on. It's a 0% chance. There was no shot from the grassy knoll. But I have more. 1979, there was a rock drummer named Steve Barber, and he purchased an adult magazine, and inside that adult magazine was a copy of the recording of the Dictabelt. I know this sounds ridiculous, but don't worry, this gets backed up. So Barber became obsessed with this Dictabelt recording. He played it over and over and over and over again, and he's listening for that fourth shot, and he just doesn't hear it. And he heard something that nobody up to that point had heard. At the point where the HSCA said the four shots occurred, Barber heard the words, quote, hold everything secure, end quote. Now, why would that have been important? Well, it's important because they match the exact words that Sheriff Decker said, quote, hold everything secure until homicide and other investigators can get there. Decker did not say those words until nearly one minute after the assassination occurred. So someone assassinated the president, and then one minute later, there was a fourth shot randomly for no reason. That does not make sense. In no way would that happen in a real-life assassination. My initial reaction when I read that was, yeah, okay, but Steve Barber the rock drummer that nobody's ever heard of and doesn't hold a lot of weight. Except the National Academy of Sciences appointed a panel of 12 scientists to study the HSCA's acoustic work, and they were dubbed the Ramsey Panel. In 1982, they concluded that the committee's work with the acoustics was seriously flawed, that's their quote, and that Barber was correct in what he heard. And the Ramsey panel went on to blast the HSCA's conclusion about a grassy knoll shooter and a fourth shot saying serious errors in its work and no acoustic basis 
for their claims. So the acoustical evidence of the grassy knoll shooter has been debunked. It seems fairly obvious that despite their best efforts, there is no photographic evidence of a shooter at the grassy knoll. But this is the conspiracy that will just not die. The grassy knoll proponents believe that they have videographic proof showing that a shooter must have been at the grassy knoll. And that proof is the Zapruder film. Because according to them in the Zapruder film, you can see the president's head snap back and to the left when the fatal bullet strikes his head. And that's fairly accurate. I've watched the Zapruder film probably 700 times in my life. And the president's head snaps back into the left. This is even something that gets spoofed in a Seinfeld episode, the Magic Loogie episode. Back into the left, back into the left. That's what you hear from conspiracy theorists all the time. So according to them, a shot that killed the president could not have come from the rear, it must have come from the front. And if the head snapped back into the left, then the bullet must have come from the front into the right, which is exactly where the grassy knoll is. Listen to Mark Lane, the godfather of all con- Kennedy conspiracies and the really the bane of logic. He states, quote, So long as the Warren Commission maintained the bullet came almost directly from the rear, it implied that the law of physics vacated in this instance, for the president did not fall forward. End quote. And then Jim Garrison, the inspiration for Kevin Costner's character in the movie JFK, and someone we're going to deal with quite a bit more later, says, quote, It takes no arguments, no words. When you look at the Zabruder film, you see that the president was shot from the front. There is no question about it. Any American seeing the film would know at a glance that the entire Warren Commission conclusion was a complete hoax, was absolutely false. End quote. Oh, really, Jim? There's no question, no argument? There's no, there's no answers to the supposed evidence that you see in the Zapruder film? Yeah, well, I'm about to tell you what the answer is. Now, I will say the Warren Commission is not perfect. The Warren Commission never addresses the head snap to the, to the rear, the back and to the left. But you also have to remember that there was conclusive scientific and medical evidence showing that the president was shot twice and that both shots came from the rear, and that's what we discussed in one of the other episodes. In their mind, it was irrelevant how the president's head moved because the scientific evidence proved the shots came from the back. So anything else is just dross. But that doesn't fly with conspiracy theories, and frankly, I think it was a mistake by the commission. So there are multiple answers to this head snap to the back and to the left. First off, more than likely, right off the bat, the head snap was not caused from a bullet. It was caused from a neuromuscular reaction. The nerve damage from the bullet to the brain caused the back muscles of the president's body to involuntarily tighten, causing a tensing of the entire upper body, which violently moved his head back and to the left. Now, the Warren Commission may have not talked about the head snap to the rear, but the HSCA did investigate it fairly heavily. Keep in mind, the HSCA did its investigative work in 1978. 
the conspiracy theories started almost immediately after the assassination. So the HSCA could kind of target its investigation towards specific theories that were put out there because they had plenty of time to ripen by 1978, 15 years later. So they had Larry Sturdivant, a research wound ballistics scientist at the Biophysics Laboratory at the Federal Aberdeen Proving Ground. Wow, that is a mouthful. They asked him to testify, and when the HSCA asked if he was, quote, troubled by the head snap, he testified, quote, No, sir. The neuromuscular reaction in which the heavy back muscles predominate over the lighter abdomen muscles would have thrown him backwards no matter where the bullet came from, whether it entered the front, the side, or the back of the head, end quote. Now, beyond that, in 1975, the iTech Corporation in Massachusetts photo-optics company studied the original Zapruder film, and they found something that is extremely interesting and also something that conspiracy theorists like to completely avoid altogether. iTech proved that before the head snap to the rear, within one frame of the fatal headshot, Kennedy's head moves forward approximately 2.3 inches and then snaps backwards. Not only that, right after the bullet hits, Kennedy's head is pushed forward and downward, about those 2.3 inches, indicating that the shot came from behind and above, which is exactly where Oswald was. So if you watch the Zapruder film at full speed, you see the head snap to the rear. But an enhanced reproduction of the Zapruder film that is slowed down, and if you watch it frame by frame, the frame after the fatal headshot Kennedy's head moves forward and down, and then the neuromuscular reaction takes over, violently snapping his head backwards via the muscular spasms in his back. Beyond that, if you enhance, in, in enha enhanced reproduction of frame 313, which is the fatal headshot frame of the Zapruder film, it shows the spray of blood, shell fragments, and brain matter a millisecond after the president is shot to go to be going forward. This spray of blood is going forward, not backwards. And that jives with what Nellie Connolly said in her testimony, as well as Roy Kellerman, who was sitting in the front, very front seat of the limo. They were hit with blood and brain matter from the president, both of them sitting in front. If a bullet truly did hit from the back, excuse me, excuse me, if the bullet truly did hit from the front, A, how do conspiracy theorists explain the 2.3 inches of down and forward motion of the head? Spoiler alert, they just don't mention it. And how do they answer the testimony of Nellie Connolly and Kellerman, who are sitting in front of Kennedy and were sprayed with his blood and brain matter, which incidentally disgusting. Sorry that I have to hit on that so hard. They can't explain it. It it is again proof. The shot came from behind. No doubt about it. Now, 
because conspiracy theorists, I think, deep down, they subconsciously must know that they do not have a leg to stand on when presented with the evidence. So they have to come up with even more ridiculous theories. Josiah Thompson writes in his pro-conspiracy book that there must have been a shot from the front that hit nearly simultaneously to the other headshot so that there was a shot from behind that propelled Kennedy's head forward 2.3 inches and then just almost at that exact moment a headshot from the front snapped his head violently backwards. Okay, let's dive into that. According to Dr. Vincent Gwynn, Rudimentary physics tell us that a bullet would not cause a human head to move that much. Not the violent head snap we see in the Zapruder film. Hollywood notwithstanding, that's not something that happens in real life. Average rifle bullet weighs about a third of an ounce. And the average human head is between 10 and 14 pounds and has muscular resistance from the neck and the torso. So to quote Gwyn. Quote, one third of an ounce striking a resistant 10 to 14 pounds, particularly where there is penetration, as there was here, with resulting loss of momentum, is going to move those 10 to 14 pounds very slightly. End quote. When the author of the book that I was reading asked Gwyn about the 2.3 inches of motions to the motion to the front of Kennedy's head, he indicated that is about exactly how much he would expect a human head to move if struck by a bullet that was about the third of an ounce. He also states there is no way that a bullet based on physics that is a third of an ounce would snap Kennedy's head backwards, even if it was traveling at 2,000 feet per second. It's just not physically possible. And this can be backed up if you look at true gunshot victims, which I am not advocating you do. I did not do this. But according to the research that I did, Hollywood, of course, shows people getting shot and there's these dramatic reactions because you're watching a fictionalized entertainment. But there is video of... Oof, boy, I wish I would have written this down. It, it, was, it was in World War II and there's video of death squads shooting, I think it was Polish or maybe Lithuanian... Um, prisoners of war and I of course did not watch this because I don't need that in my brain but according to the research that I did the video of this basically shows men getting shot in the head and just crumpling straight to the ground there is no head snap there is no dramatic blasting of them backwards the, the, the head snap in the Zapruder film could not be caused by a bullet therefore there is no evidence to support a shooter from the front right. So, let's summarize the grassy knoll. There's no witnesses that saw any human, with or without a rifle, in the area conspiracy theorists claim a gunman was at the time the president was shot. The only time a witness came forward and said that she saw a person in that area was a woman, I believe her name was Jean Hill. It was over 20 years later, I believe she was paid for her testimony and she was laughed at by everybody, including her husband, because the day after or the day of the assassination, her testimony to police had zero mention of a gunman on the grassy knoll. So not someone you can take seriously. 
No witnesses saw anyone fleeing from the area after the shooting. All medical evidence proves that the wounds to Kennedy came from the rear. So a shooter on the grassy knoll is medically impossible. And there is other random things that I hardly even mentioned. Like the wound in the throat. It's been proven to be an exit wound. But for sake of argument, let's say that it was a an entrance wound from a shooter at the grassy knoll. Where's the exit wound for that bullet? If the shot came from the grassy knoll, the exit wound would be in Kennedy's left upper back. The only wound in Kennedy's back was on his upper right. So that would have to be a shot that came from the other side of the street from the grassy knoll, which was a wide open area that nobody could hide a rifle in. So there's just, you can't, there's no way a shot came from the front. And now assuming that there was a conspiracy, you I would feel like it's a safe assumption that whoever hired the assassin would be a fairly good marksman. So we are to assume if we are to accept the belief that there was a shooter from the right, knowing that all evidence points to the wounds to Kennedy coming from the back, we are to assume that the hitman not only missed the president entirely, but missed the entirety of the presidential limo from 35 to 57 yards away. And if they missed, what happened to the bullet? No one else was hit. No bullet has ever been found anywhere in the Dealey Plaza area. So, how do you explain that? And also, the grassy knoll is a terrible spot for an assassin to set up. So, we're really supposed to believe that, let's say, for sake of argument, the CIA or the mob or the KGB, when planning the biggest murder in history, put an assassin where people would be sitting and watching the motorcade at ground level in an area potentially easily observed, photographed, or videoed by innocent bystanders. That seems well outside of the reasonable expectations of a conspiracy so despite it being one of the most prevalent conspiracy theories out there i think it's safe to say that with a little bit of research the grassy knoll is something that you can pretty easily debunk and if you're just looking at it logically you are not a hardcore conspiracy theorist you have to agree there was no second shooter and I even have Walter Cronkite on my side, most trusted man in America in the 1960s. There's a 1967 special on the Kennedy assassination on CBS. It's a couple years after the assassination. And Walter Cronkite said this, and this is going to be the last thing I'm going to say on the Grassy Knoll. Quote, to accept the Grassy Knoll conspiracy, we'd have to believe an assassin materialized out of thin air fired a shot, and then vanished again into thin air, leaving no trace of himself, his rifle, his bullet, or any other sign of existence. If the demands for certainty that are made upon the commission, the Warren Commission, were applied to its critics, the theory of the second assassin would vanish before it was spoken. End quote. Thank you, Walter.
So I'm going to get into some of the organizations that have been accused of conspiring to kill Kennedy. But before I do that, I just want a quick hit on one somewhat prevalent conspiracy theory, at least that you see online. And it's the Umbrella Man. The Umbrella Man is somewhat popular. And according to conspiracy theorists, it's an unidentified mystery man who is part of the conspiracy. And his job was to open an umbrella. And that was the signal for multiple gunmen to open fire. And this was popularized by Oliver Stone's rubbish movie, JFK, which I'm also going to get to later. And it's pretty weak in terms of evidence because basically it says, well, why would a man have an umbrella on a beautiful sunny day? There's got to be something fishy going on. And it does seem, if you're looking for conspiracy, it does seem a little suspect. But it's honestly such a quick little thing. The reality of the Umbrella Man is that it was a man named Lewis Witt, and he's a supervisor at a nearby insurance company, and he was on his lunch break to go see the motorcade. So yeah, real shady character there. And this is what Witt says in his HSCA testimony. He said he's a, quote, very conservative Republican who, quote, never liked the Kennedys, and the purpose of the Umbrella was to heckle the president's motorcade. So this is his quote. The purpose of the umbrella, quote, to heckle the president's motorcade, I just knew it, the umbrella, was a sore spot with the Kennedys, end quote. That seems like such a non sequitur, but looking at the history of the Kennedys, it makes sense. He explained that when JFK's father was ambassador to England, he and Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain were accused of appeasing Hitler. And the umbrella Chamberlain brought back from Germany became a symbol of appeasement. I don't know if this is true or not, but according to Witt, this is what he thought. And according to his testimony, this has happened in other Kennedy motorcades. People brought umbrellas and they, quote, brandished umbrellas when some members of the Kennedy family came through. That happened in like Tucson and Phoenix is what Witt said. So it was just a joke. It's just a joke. He was simply a Republican heckler, heckling a Democrat, as people do in politics since the beginning of time until the end of time. And he just got in the very wrong place at the very wrong time. And that's it. So let's talk about some organizations that have been accused of being complicit in the Kennedy assassination. And of course, the organization that you have to start with in any conspiracy is the CIA. And on the face of it, again, it makes sense that maybe the CIA would want Kennedy dead. And they had motive. The Bay of Pigs debacle, the belief that Kennedy was soft on communism the belief that Kennedy was going to cut the budget of the CIA by about 20%, etc., etc., etc. But the one thing that Kennedy... <laughs> the one thing that conspiracy theorists always like to push is motives, and they like to portray those motives as evidence. That don't hold up in a court of law. Motives are not evidence. You need to prove motive. Motives can help make a case, but it, you, without evidence, you got nothing. 
the animosity between JFK and the CIA is way overblown. Way overblown. There was a 1996 report. It was called Getting to Know the President, CIA Briefings of Presidential Candidates, 1952 to 1992. This is a quote from that report. The CIA's relationship with Kennedy was not only a distinct improvement over the more formal relationship with Eisenhower, but would only rarely be matching in future administrations. So why would the CIA want to get rid of a president that they had a good relationship with, despite the scandals? I mean, it makes sense. Conspiracy theorists gravitate towards the CIA because, by their very nature, they are a shadowy organization shroud, shrouded in secrecy. That is the nature of their job. So many conspiracy theorists believe Oswald may have been the assassin, but he was put up to it by the CIA. He was an asset of the CIA. Does not hold water. Oswald was, as we've seen, an avowed Marxist and passionately pro-Castro. And if there was one thing the CIA was trying to do in the 1960s, it was to get rid of Castro. And by get rid of, I mean, they wanted him dead. I mean, they tried everything. So why would Oswald join forces with the organization that literally the entire world knew was trying to overthrow Castro? It does not make sense. So, of course, conspiracy theorists to combat that very logical argument say, well, he was just pretending to be pro-Castro. He was actually a right-leaning non-Marxist in his politics, but because he was a CIA asset, he had to pretend to be pro-Castro, which is ridiculous because he was already spreading Marxist ideas as a teenager. So he's, the CIA recruited him as a teenager? I don't think so. Many of his friends and family have testified, often under oath, that Oswald was a confirmed and passionate Marxist. So to believe that conspiracy theories that portray Oswald as just faking his Marxist leanings, we would have to believe that Oswald was an Academy Award actor who was in league with the CIA since his teenage years. That's just, it's patently ridiculous. I don't even need to debunk that. Because any logical human being can see that that is ridiculous. Now, the HSCA blasted the Warren Commission for not investigating an Oswald CIA connection, which is not 100% accurate, but somewhat accurate. But the House, House Subcommittee on Assassinations did a deep dive into any connection between the CIA and Oswald. And after their extensive investigation, they found, quote, the results of this investigation confirmed the Warren Commission testimony of McCone and Helms, who were the director and deputy director of the CIA. The committee found no evidence of any relationship between Oswald and the CIA, end quote. So the Warren Commission did interview the higher-ups at the CIA, got their testimony, which said no way, shape, or form was the CIA associated with Oswald, and then when the HSCA did their own investigation, they confirmed that. Beyond the lack of evidence of any type of relationship between the CIA and Oswald, Oswald is not agent material at all. We've talked about how he is, he was a lunatic. He's a nut job. 
John Skelso, Chief of Clandestine Operations for the CIA in the Western Hemisphere in 1963, which, incidentally, awesome title. He says, quote, Oswald was a person of a type who would never have been recruited by the agency. His personality and background completely disqualified him for clandestine work, end quote. So, of course, the answer you get back when you confront conspiracy theorists with this fairly logical argument and lack of evidence on their part, they come back with, well, of course, it's the CIA. They've covered it up so well that, you know, us normal people can't find the information. But what about George de Morgenschild? That's a hard name to pronounce. I hope I'm saying it right. George de Morgenschild is probably how you say it. Anyway, conspiracy theorists always, port, always point to George. I'm just going to call him George as the connection between Oswald and the CIA. And it is true that George has had contact, had had contact with the CIA, and he had a friendship with Oswald. So obviously, according to these people, George de Mochenschild recruited Oswald on behalf of the CIA. Again, does not hold water. The HSCA thoroughly investigated George and found, quote, no evidence that Demolchenschild had ever been an American intelligent, intelligence agent, end quote. His contact with the CIA was simply debriefings in Dallas sometime from 1957 to 1961, or, or multiple times in that time period. The debriefings were done by J. Walton Moore. He was part of the CIA's domestic contact service. He's an overt agent. He was the kind of guy that said, I work for the CIA, and he was allowed to say that. He was in no part a covert agent, never part of any covert operations. His job was overt. During this time, if an American traveled abroad to certain countries, the CIA wanted to debrief them when they came home. In that time period, 1957 to 61, as many as 25,000 Americans were debriefed after, after traveling abroad. And George DeMorenshield was only unique out of those 25,000 because he also happened to befriend Oswald. I believe he befriended Oswald through Oswald's wife because the wife was friends with expatriate Russians who were friends with George. It's a whole big thing. But... It's just not, it's nothing sinister. Once again, it's just circumstances that people are looking way too hard into to try to find a conspiracy because they have preconceived notions of a conspiracy instead of approaching the evidence logically and then believing what the evidence shows them. So, one month after the assassination, the CIA released a report about its awareness of Oswald pre-assassination. It states that they were aware that he was an ex-Marine who defected to the Soviet Union. They had no sources in place in the USSR to report on his activity. The CIA was not aware of anybody named Jack Ruby pre-assassination. And once again, conspiracy theories say, well, of course, this is what the CIA would say. They're trying to cover it up. But in six decades of investigation, not quite six decades, nearly six decades of investigation, not one person or group has ever been able to come up with any evidence to refute 
the claims made by the CIA in 1963, right after the assassination, that said we had basically no knowledge of Oswald other than the fact that he went to the USSR. And even the KGB has gone on record saying that in no way do they believe Oswald was an agent of the CIA. And if there was anybody who wanted the CIA to be implicated in the assassination of the American president, don't you think it would be the KGB, the quote-unquote CIA of the Soviet Union, the direct enemy of the CIA? They would do anything they could to smear the CIA's name, and yet they got, they've gone on record shortly after the assassination saying that they have no evidence that Oswald was an agent of the CIA. Not only that, but there have been four investigative committees. The Warren Commission, the HSCA, the Rockefeller Commission, and the Church Commission. And not one shred of evidence has been found by any four, any one of those four investigative committees that have shown a connection between the CIA and Oswald or even the CIA in the assassination at all. There is no evidence. And when it comes down to it, that's the only thing I need to say. Until someone can prove with hard evidence instead of theories and logical fallacies that the CIA was involved, the only answer is that they had no involvement whatsoever. So the other organization that gets a lot of conspiracy theories thrown around about it is the FBI. And honestly, when I was doing the research, the FBI stories and the CIA stories seem very similar. It's conjecture, it's made-up testimony, connections of Oswald to the FBI, and frankly, I just didn't really feel like going into it after I went into the CIA, and I felt like there were some other ones that were more interesting, so I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. Call me an unprofessional historian. Well, I've never called myself a historian. <laughs> Amateur historian. But to me, the FBI was just too similar to the CIA. I didn't want to put everybody to sleep, so I just leave it at it's similar to the theories made up about the CIA and the Warren Church, HSCA, and others investigated the FBI and found no evidence of complicity. So I'm just going to leave it at that. So other than the CIA, the organization that is most accused by the conspiracy community is the mafia or the mob, if I remember correctly. And that's because the Kennedy administration, especially spearheaded by the Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, the president's brother, brought about, quote, the strongest effort against organized crime that had ever been coordinated by the federal government, end quote. That's from the HSCA. So initially, right after the assassination, Bobby Kennedy immediately thought the mob must have been behind it. And I say mob or mafia. I will use that word interchangeably. But he immediately asked his office to look for links. But in the end, he was convinced that it was not a mob hit. Now, conspiracy theorists allege that the mob contributed to Kennedy's 1960s campaign, and then the idea would be that he would be soft on organized crime, and when he went after them shortly after he was elected, they viewed this as a betrayal, and since he betrayed them, they put out on a hit and had him killed. But this theory of retribution is 
very lacking in evidence. In fact, so lacking in evidence that despite extensively investigating the mob, the HSCA doesn't even mention this theory in its final report. That's how little credence they gave it. It was just nothing. The more popular theory, as I mentioned briefly, is that the mob had Kennedy killed so that Bobby would stop coming after them. They didn't want to be feeling the pressure, so they killed the president, figuring that would end the investigations and the going after the mob. At least that's what the conspiracy theorists say. But motive is not evidence, as we've talked about. From early 1961 through the assassination in 63, and I believe beyond that, but for our intents and purposes, 61 to 63 is the important part, the FBI had bugged the nine members of Organized Crimes National Commission. And I just realized that I am having a terrible time saying organized crime. I had to redo this like four times. The National Commission is a group that was made up of the leaders of the prominent mafia families, plus a few others, I believe. And they made the decisions of national importance for the mob. The mob is not just some gang. It is a business. And they made business decisions at a high level. So, the HSCA listened to the electronic surveillance. And they said this in its report. Now, bear with the length of this quote, but it is all very crucial information. Quote, The committee's review of the surveillance transcript and logs detailing the private conversations of the commission members and their associates revealed that there were extensive and heated discussions about the serious difficulties the Kennedy assassination's crackdown on organized crime was causing. The bitterness and anger with which organized crime leaders viewed the Kennedy administration are readily apparent in the electronic surveillance transcripts, with such remarks being repeatedly made by commission members Genovese, Giancana, Bruno, Zerilli, Patriarca, and Megadino. While the committee's examination of the electronic surveillance program revealed no shortage of such conversations during that period, the committee found no evidence in the conversations of the formulation of any specific plan to assassinate the president. The committee concluded that had the National Crime Syndicate, as a group, been involved in a conspiracy to kill the president, some trace of the plot would have been picked up by the FBI surveillance of the commission. Given the far-reaching possible consequences of the assassination plot by the commission, the committee found that such a conspiracy would have been the subject of serious discussions by members of the commission and that no matter how guarded such discussions might have been, some trace of them would have emerged from the surveillance coverage. This surveillance continued, as I said, beyond the assassination and it picked up mob members talking about the assassination, but it was in ways that were clearly non-complicit. Guessing about who the assassin might be, uh, one henchman of Giancana actually makes a guess that the president was killed by a Marxist, but they have no idea at the time that the assassination occurred who killed Kennedy any more than anybody else did. So it was pretty clear that the mob is not complicit in the assassination. Beyond that, there was no guarantee that killing Kennedy would solve the mob's problem anyway. When an associate was saying how badly he wanted to kill Kennedy again, this was caught on a bug. Angelo Bruno, Angelo, oh my goodness gracious. Angelo Bruno, who was the mob boss in Philly, is heard telling a story, and basically the story comes down to the next guy might be worse, so let's stick with the guy that we have. 
and it was pretty clear that he was talking this guy down from his bragging when he said, I'm going to kill this guy, I'm going to kill him. The mob boss said, don't even think about it, because the next guy might be worse. And the enemy that we know is better than the enemy we don't. That does not sound like compelling evidence for the mob killing Kennedy. And that wasn't just some Joe Blow on the street, that was the mob boss in Philly. Now there is more evidence to support the anti-conspiracy community's belief that the mob was not involved in this. The American mob, unlike the mob in Sicily where the mafia started before it made its way over to the United States and other places, the American mob has never targeted American public officials. The mob bosses, in fact, take active steps to avoid taking down public officials. Mob bosses such as Lucky Luciano have actually murdered their own members that went after public officials. They didn't murder the public official that was causing them problems. They murdered the mob member who went after the public official. And on the face of it, this makes a lot of sense. They wanted to avoid coming after public officials because they did not want the American legal system retaliating against the mob. If you start going after policemen, judges, and other high-profile members of the American system, it's going to come after you. And that is not what a crime family wants. Again, I'll say it again. The mob was a business. And they made decisions based on how they made money, like any other business, just with a little bit more shady business practices and dealings. But they were a money-making business, making business decisions. So, in order for us to believe that the mob was responsible, we have to believe that without discussing it beforehand at the high level of the National Commission for the Crime Families, the mob decided to reverse years of policy, and not only that, but started by murdering the most public official in the Western world? No way. No way. This is, this is the mafia who had a policy in place that even street cops were off-limits. And the, com the conspiracy community wants us to believe that they killed the president? Absolutely not. Furthermore, last thing about the mob. The HSCA investigated thousands of mob murders. And I am fully aware that the mob has killed a lot of people. The HSCA found only two examples of when a non-member was used for the murder and they were both after the Kennedy assassination. So the mob, a professional criminal organization, decided to kill the president. And instead of using one of their highly trained, competent hitmen, they instead used an outsider for the first time, an outsider who was an unstable, young communist, and then they used a mentally ill nightclub owner to kill the assassin while in police custody. I mean, you understand how ridiculous that sounds. The mob has extremely well-trained hitmen, and they have practices in place to make sure that those hitmen don't get caught. They don't kill people in police custody, and they don't kill the president with a lunatic 24-year-old Marxist. It's just not what happens. So, if someone tells you the mob killed Kennedy, tell them to shut it. 
shut them down. <laughs> the end. Now let's talk about the Soviets. Now the USSR and the KGB being behind the Kennedy assassination on its face makes sense. But if you look into it a little bit, it becomes a ludicrous conspiracy theory. This is not a Cold War novel. This is not a Cold War movie. It's not fiction. This is real life. Conspiracy theorists see Oswald's defection and they immediately start connecting imaginary dots. But imagine if the USSR had been caught assassinating the U.S. president during the Cold War in broad daylight. All options would be on the table for U.S. retaliation up to and including nuclear war. This is less than a year, no, excuse me, this is 13 months after the Cuban Missile Crisis when the U.S. and the USSR were possibly moments away from thermonuclear annihilation before they backed down. And suddenly, the USSR decides they are going to kill the president and ramp those tensions right back up and maybe even beyond that? I don't think so. The USSR and the US at this point in time when Kennedy was assassinated were actually making strides for peace. They were trying to de-escalate tensions. There was no reason, there was no motive for even someone like Nikita Khrushchev, who was power-hungry and maybe a little crazy, to assassinate the U.S. president. And beyond that, Kennedy's foreign policy did not pose a threat to the Soviet Union. Kennedy wanted to contain the Soviets, but he did not want to expand U.S. hegemony. He did not want to bring the power of the United States into areas of influence that the Soviets wanted to control. At the time of the U.S., Excuse me, at the time of the Kennedy assassination, the USSR's main adversary was China, not the US. Yes, China was a communist country, but they had different ways of looking at their ideal. And the USSR and China were struggling to see who was going to be the main communist superpower. So, why would they assassinate the president when things were kind of going well for both sides? despite it being the middle of the Cold War. Now, at the time that Oswald defected to the, to the Soviet Union, the head of the KGB was a man named Vladimir Semichastny. And he told NBC through an interpreter in 1993 that the KGB originally took an interest in Oswald. He was an ex-Marine, he was young, he was disgruntled, and he had been at a naval base that had some connection with the U-2 spy plane. Now, I don't get into that too much because there's nothing to get into, but there are conspiracy theorists that think that Oswald had a higher level security clearance than he actually had and that he was able to turn over information on the U-2 spy plane. It's totally debunked. But the KGB may have thought originally this was something to pursue. In the 1993 interview... This is what Vladimir said, quote, Oswald turned out to be a mediocre, uninteresting man. We had, high, we had had high expectations of him as an informant, but nothing ever came of it. We soon learned we couldn't put any hopes on him. We realized Oswald was a useless man, end quote. And this is not just the KGB director covering his tracks 30 years later. 
he issued a memo in 1963 said the exact same thing. Didn't change his story in 30 years. And it makes perfect sense. The KGB was a highly competent, professional organization. They would never associate with someone like Oswald. And they definitely would not use him if they were going to do something as important as assassinate the president. And if they were going to assassinate the president, they would not do it in broad daylight with a rifle where they could be so easily caught. They were a secretive organization. They would have gone about it in a secretive way. But it's a moot point because they didn't do it. There's no evidence to connect them to it. Once again, it comes down to, I have evidence to support my claims. There is no evidence to support the conspiracy theorists. So another organization that is often implicated in the assassination, not nearly as much as the CIA or the FBI or the mob, but that's the Secret Service. And right off the bat, this one's pretty easy to debunk by just talking about the motorcade route. The Secret Service had no say in the motorcade route. And thus, how could they have possibly known where to place an assassin ahead of time? It would have been a spur-of-the-moment assassination with no prior planning in place. And that's just not how these things work. The... Secret Service actually preferred a different route to the trademark and were overruled. They liked a route that they deemed to be more safe and were overruled by more political-minded people. And it's beyond that just more ridiculous. I keep saying beyond that because there's just more evidence. There's always more. There's always more that I can say to prove or at least strongly imply that conspiracy theorists don't have a leg to stand on. So I apologize. I keep saying beyond that, beyond that, beyond that. But there's no motive for the Secret Service to kill the president. In fact, of any organization, they have only losses involved. They have, they have nothing to gain and everything to lose from the president being assassinated. Their job as the presidential detail, they have one job. That's to take a bullet for the president. Protect his life and that of his family. If they fail and the president gets assassinated, the only thing that they gain is loss of prestige. That makes no sense. It's an oxymoron, I know. But they gain a black mark on their record and possibly the loss of their job and their organization as a whole loses a massive amount of prestige. Now, if you look at the CIA, the FBI, the mob, they all had something to gain if the president was assassinated. And they still didn't do it. The Secret Service has nothing to gain. But that doesn't stop conspiracy authors from making up outlandish claims. And this one actually made me laugh out loud when I read it. Normally, conspiracy theories piss me off because they're just so lacking in logic and truth that they present to the American public, but they're presented in such a way that they make them easy to believe and the average American will eat it up. And it pisses me off because it's disingenuous. But this one made me laugh out loud. Harrison Edward Livingstone says, quote, secret service agents close to the president who knew of some of his feminine liaisons resented it, sat in judgment of him and cooperated with the plotters to kill him. <laughs> 
So there's no sources or anything to back this up. Livingston Livingstone does not provide a source. Evidence is basically from his imagination. But in his imagination, the Secret Service agents were upset that President Kennedy was banging these bodacious blondes. And so they decided to kill him. That is, that is really, that's a, that's a crackerjack story. Now, it's been shown through many interviews and books written by Secret Service members. The Secret Service agents had a wonderful relationship with Kennedy. He treated them respectfully. They treated him respectfully. They loved his family. There's absolutely nothing to connect the Secret Service to Kennedy's assassination, jealous or not. Maybe, I mean, let me be honest. Some of them had to be jealous if he was banging Marilyn Monroe, but not enough to kill him. So, like the HSCA said in their report, you can definitely say that the Secret Service was, quote, deficient in the performance of its duties, but they were not complicit in any way. <laughs> oh, I can't even believe I had this mention that in a, a podcast feminine liaisons <laughs> so continuing this theme of who had the most to gain from the assassination of kennedy we got to talk about lbj now again another person that is implicated quite often in conspiracy theorists the vice president lyndon baines johnson and again not much truth to this but it's one that pops up, and from an outsider's view, when you don't really know all the ins and outs of the evidence and the sources, there seems to be some fake, compelling evidence to support the theory that Lyndon Johnson was behind, or at least part of the conspiracy to kill the president. And again, it's be he was vice president. He becomes president if Kennedy dies. It's a dream that he had his whole adult life, and... It makes sense that he would want Kennedy out of the way. Not only that, but conspiracy theorists allege that in 64, Kennedy was considering dropping Johnson from the ticket. They didn't really get along that well. And Johnson and Bobby Kennedy hated each other. But there's no, it does not hold water. Johnson was going to be on the ticket. Kennedy had given him unequivocal support as late as October of 63, so only a month before the assassination. And, of course, you have to you have to win the South to win the election. And the 64 candidate was going to be Barry Goldwater for the Republicans, I believe. And he was from the South. Johnson had to be on the ticket. So the whole, they're going to drop Johnson from the ticket so he killed Kennedy to become president before he could do that, doesn't hold water. And there is scant evidence connecting Johnson in any way, shape, or form. And most of it is all hogwash. There's Gene Hill, who I think I mentioned earlier. I'm sorry, I'm recording this a couple days after I recorded the first half. I think I mentioned Gene Hill. She was a Dealey Plaza witness. 23 years after the assassination, she suddenly remembered there was a gunman on the Degrassi Knoll, despite never having mentioned it before, etc., etc., etc. So she also claimed later on in life that... Quote, Johnson crouched down before the first shot, end quote, as if he was expecting it. There's no evidence of that. There's no photographic evidence. There's no other eyewitness. It's just 
one lunatic wanting the spotlight after being out of the spotlight 30 years, you know, with the assassination and wanting to get back. No evidence. So we can discard that. Now, Greg Zerbel, who is a author of a conspiracy book, states, quote, Before Kennedy was buried, Johnson ordered the assassination limousine to be shipped to Detroit for complete refurbishing, a deliberate destruction of evidence, end quote. Now let's dive into that a little bit, because Zerbel's source is Jim Mars, another conspiracy author. And Mars' source doesn't exist. So one author writes some made-up story about destroying evidence. Another author uses that as his source, and it continues down the road. And suddenly, it's like a game of telephone, and the average American is reading this going, wow, look at all the sources here saying that this evidence was destroyed. There's got to be something to this. There's nothing to it. There is not any documentation anywhere that Johnson personally ordered the limo to be rebuilt. And even if it had been rebuilt right away, the FBI and Secret Service examined and photographed and removed any evidence from the limo on the night of November 22nd into the morning of November November 23. It was investigated heavily and all traces of anything that could be considered evidence were removed or photographed. And most importantly, the limo wasn't even immediately refurbished. That's just a made-up lie that a conspiracy theorist came up with. The limo did not get sent to Detroit until a year later, and it wasn't finished with the refurbishment until May 11, 1964. If LGBT... If LBJ was trying to destroy evidence, he was garbage at it. Now, the conspiracy theory that comes up the most when talking about Lyndon Johnson is Madeline Brown. Now, this is an interesting one. It's one I had heard before I started diving into this. And it's one, again, that if you just take it at face value, the initial reaction is, holy crap, this is damning evidence. So Madeline Brown is the alleged, according to her, mistress of LBJ from 1948 until well into his ministry, presidency. I am struggling. In her 1997 book, she is not able to offer any letter, document, or any evidence to authenticate a romance with Johnson. The one picture she has in the book that she says shows she was his mistress is at a party with her son and a man whose back is to them that she claims is LBJ. Now, according to Brown, she attended a party at Clint Murchison's Sr.'s home in Dallas the evening before the assassination. Now, at this party, according to Madeline Brown, was J. Edgar Hoover, John McCloy, who was later on the Warren Commission, Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon, I'm sorry I'm stumbling, H.L. Hunt, who was an oil baron, and many other Dallas elite. Now, Lyndon Johnson was not supposed to be at this party due to scheduling conflicts, but he showed up unscheduled and made an appearance at the party. Now, at the party, he went up to Madeline Brown, grabbed her hand, and then whispered in her ear, quote, After tomorrow, those goddamn Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. Now, further, she says that 11 a.m. the next day, she talked to Jesse Kellum, who was an aide to LBJ, 
and he said, quote, Lyndon is in a terrible mood, screaming about the Kennedys. All he can say is, those goddamn Kennedys will never embarrass me again after today. Now, if true, this would be incredibly damning evidence. So let's, let's examine it and find out if it's true or not. So just on the face of it, the average observer has to question this theory and this alleged party that Madeline Brown is talking about. Because Lyndon Johnson was one of the most politically savvy men to ever be in American politics. He was ruthless, he was politically genius, and he knew how to get what he wanted. And yet he was well-respected and a titan of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Vice Presidency. And suddenly, he loses all control and starts screaming about the biggest political coup in the history of the world, or at least the history of the modern world. It just seems extraordinarily doubtful. Now, that wouldn't be enough quote-unquote evidence, that's not evidence, to debunk Madeline Brown. That would just be, he said, she said. Fortunately, I have more. Lyndon Johnson was in Houston the night before the assassination. That's 225 miles from Dallas. And from there, he flew to Fort Worth and was in Fort Worth at 1 a.m. on November 22, 1963. That's documented. So how was he in Dallas at a party at Clint Murchison Sr.'s house the night before the assassination when he was actually 225 miles away? The same thing can be said about J. Edgar Hoover. November 21, his daily logs showed him at his office in D.C. at 8.57 in the morning until 5.14 in the evening and then back in the office on November 22 at 9 a.m., he did not leave until 6.01 p.m. So we're to believe that at 5.14 he hopped a flight to Dallas, hung out at a party for a while, and then flew back and was back in his office at 9 a.m.? Seems highly unlikely. Nixon was in Dallas. So there was one person at this party that was actually in Dallas on November 21. He was a partner in a law firm that represented Pepsi. And the night before the assassination, he was at a performance by Robert Clary and was still at that performance as late as 10.45 p.m. So it would have been a very late night if he was then going to a different party at Clint Murchison's house. There's a researcher, a man named David Perry. He has become well-known in the Kennedy assassination community. He has studied extensively, maybe more than any other person, the Kennedy assassination and he has debunked nearly every conspiracy out there, so he's basically my hero. And he investigated this supposed party. He's not only skeptical of who was there, he does not believe that the party happened at all, and I have to say I agree with him. So first off, this alleged party happened at Clint Murchison Sr.'s home. He was an oil baron, but Clint was not in good health. He had had a stroke in 1958, and he had moved out of his Dallas home over four years before the assassination, and he turned it over to his son. There was a woman named Eula Tilly. She worked for Murchison and was the wife of Murchison's chauffeur, 
and she reported that Murchison was at his Glad Oaks ranch, 120 miles southeast of Dallas, for at least a few days before and the day after the assassination. So Perry goes on to say that not only does he doubt this party ever happened, he doubts that Brown had an affair with Lyndon Johnson at all. There's just too many inconsistencies. There's allegations that can't be confirmed. Parties that she says she attended with LBJ that don't exist. There's just too many things in her stories that don't add up. And you add it all together and it sure looks like she is just a liar, a shyster. Robert Caro, who is a historian who wrote an extensive biography on Lyndon Johnson, does not devote one single word to Brown. Not an entire word in, I think, a two-volume biography, maybe even a three-volume biography. And it's not like he was just trying to protect Lyndon Johnson's image. He mentions the other affairs that Lyndon Johnson had, but he does not mention Brown at all. She just cannot be believed. Now, Brown also claims that Lyndon Johnson was killed by his own Secret Service, which we've already talked about being ludicrous. Uh, no, actually, we didn't talk about that. I totally just blanked on what I said. She doesn't claim Kennedy was killed by the Secret Service. She claims LBJ was killed by the Secret Service, which is ludicrous. He died of, I think, heart failure, heart disease, well after his presidency. So, she just makes even more outlandish claims. And despite all this, she is embraced by the community of conspiracy theorists, and she is the crown jewel of those that believe that LBJ is involved. So, I don't think I have to wrap a bow on that one. She clearly is delusional, and there's nothing behind the conspiracy theories that say that LBJ was a part of it. Now, a quick short one that we have to discuss is the Cuba or Castro killing Kennedy. Uh, again, makes sense just on the face value. Oswald was obsessed with Castro and Cuba, thought it was the jewel of Marxist thought and had tried to defect there but was denied. There was known animosity between Castro and U.S. leadership. Eisenhower had shut down all U.S. diplomatic relations. Then there was the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis during the Kennedy, uh, Kennedy administration. And it would make sense that possibly Castro would want to off Kennedy. But immediately after the assassination, the NSA began investigating Cuban signal intelligence, and the Cuban army went to high alert after the assassination. That doesn't fit with the narrative of Castro being the one behind it. Because if they were, really were going to assassinate President Kennedy, you would think that they would have gone to high alert beforehand to be prepared for any retaliatory strike. But they didn't go to high alert until after the assassination, more of a reaction instead of a proactive move. The NSA concluded, quote, a thorough review has revealed no intelligence material revealing or suggesting Cuban involvement in the assassination of President Kennedy, end quote. And every other investigative body that has looked into the assassination has concluded the same. Now, most conspiracy theories Theorists have given up on the idea that Castro or Cuba was behind it. There are still a few hardcore wingnuts that hold to it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I did want to mention it because it does get brought up, but it is mostly a discredited theory. Now, the last thing we have to talk about before summary and conclusion is Jim Garrison. Now, this is where things get a wee bit ridiculous, but also 
it ends up becoming the spectacle that convinced most of my generation that there was a conspiracy. And how that comes about, I will explain. Jim Garrison, New Orleans District Attorney, was a New Orleans District Attorney, who wrote a book which eventually became the basis of the Oliver Stone movie JFK, which I'm going to get to. Now, Garrison investigated, which I use that term lightly, and ultimately unsuccessfully prosecuted a businessman named Clay Shaw for conspiring, quote, with David W. Ferry, Lee Harvey Oswald, and others to murder John F. Kennedy. It is the only prosecution to date to come from the Kennedy assassination. Right off the bat, this was viewed as a spectacle and a misuse of the U.S. legal system. Clay Shaw was a respected and accomplished businessman, and he had also served and was decorated in World War II. He was also a homosexual, and this could be one of the reasons why he was targeted by Garrison, and of course it was exploited later on in the trial. David Ferry was a manic depressive who wore homemade wigs and huge eyebrows of bright red to hide his alopecia. He was a bit of a quirky, interesting character. His backstory, he was a seminary student for two years, commercial airline pilot, flying instructor, a high school aeronautical science teacher, private investigator, accomplished pianist, service station proprietor, psychologist without credentials, hypnotist, self-styled clergyman of the Orthodox Old Catholic Church of North America, and a searcher for a cure for cancer. Quite a life. Most people that knew Ferry agreed that he was very troubled, but also quite brilliant. Now, according to Garrison, this is what happened. Oswald did not fire one shot, but he was supposed to present himself as a pro-Castro Marxist, despite, according to Garrison, being extreme right-wing in his politics. So he's one of those guys that says that, no, it wasn't a communist plot by Oswald. He was just pretending to be a communist so that he could be an asset for other people that wanted to assassinate Kennedy. He was being manipulated to be a decoy and a patsy, according to Oswald. According to Garrison, Kennedy was murdered, quote, by a precision guerrilla team of at least seven men, end quote, and they were located on the Grassy Knoll, the Book Depository, and the Dal Tex, the Dal Tex building. There was one man in each team who fired from each location. Another man on the team picked up the shells, and one member faked a seizure as a diversionary tactic just before the motorcade reached the ambush. This is all, like I said, this was brought to trial. This is just ridiculousness. Garrison also claims that there were rogue elements of the CIA that were involved. And he mentions this in his book, but in his prosecution of Shaw, he doesn't show any evidence of CIA involvement and he never mentions it. So he just brings that up and then doesn't pursue it. Now, there is evidence to suggest that much of Garrison's early investigative work was not done by himself, but by Warren Commission critics who had came to New Orleans. This all went down in the late 60s, I believe. I should have written that down. That was a failure on my part. I think it was in the 1967 or early 70s. But it was shortly after the Warren Commission had come out relative to our time. And there were critics of the Warren Commission. And when Garrison announced that he was going to prosecute someone for the Kennedy assassination, these critics came out of the woodwork, went flocking down to New Orleans, and started helping out. And Garrison gave several of them DA investigator 
credentials. Now, the problem was, with the exception of one man, whose name was Bill Turner, not a single one of those that came to help had even one day of experience in investigating a crime. And there was a man on Garrison's actual staff. His name was Thomas Bethel. And he said the trouble with conspiracy theories, theorists, quote, is that they only is that the only way they can make a strong impression on Garrison is by coming up with flamboyant nonsense. They, therefore, represent a serious threat to the sanity of the investigation. End quote. Now, to their credit, by the time the jury declared Shaw not guilty in 1969, most of the people who came to help Garrison had abandoned him. They believed that Garrison had crossed way over the line, and that he wanted a conviction at all costs, including the cost of the truth. And so they were persecuting and impugning the reputation of an innocent man, which Clay Shaw definitely was. I'm not even, not even going to get into the ins and outs of the trial, because it's pointless. Clay Shaw was innocent, and he was getting railroaded. The funny thing about Jim Garrison is the conspiracy community believes that he set them back years. Because... Garrison had a theory of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. He claims that Kennedy was shot from the grassy knoll. He claimed that Oswald was a patent, a patent, a patsy, accused the CIA. He accused anti-Castro Cuban exiles. He accused the military industrial complex, Dallas Police Department, organized crimes, and others. He accused everybody. And once you start accusing everybody, eventually you just look like a loon. Conspiracy author Howard Rodman says, quote, The New Orleans fiasco caused the virtual destruction of whatever foundation for credibility that had previously been established by critics of the Warren Commission, end quote. So Garrison is completely discredited. And then Oliver Stone bought the rights to his book. And in 1991, I believe, the movie JFK hit theaters. And... I hate that movie with so much passion. So in the movie, Jim Garrison is played by Kevin Costner, and he's portrayed not as a lunatic psychopath who is persecuting an innocent man. He is portrayed instead as an American hero searching for the dangerous truth. And it is propaganda. Plain and simple propaganda. And unfortunately, the younger generation of the United States ate it up. There is not a single piece of pro-conspiracy media that has been that has done more to convince people that there is a conspiracy, and it is a work of fiction. It's fiction. Arlen Specter, who worked on the Warren Commission, says, quote, Stone's film has done more than any other single effort to distort history in the commission's work. End quote. Now, an early copy of the script of the movie was given to George Lardner. He was the national security writer for the Washington Post, who also covered the Shaw trial. And he learned that it would closely follow Garrison's investigation in the book. And he wrote in the Post, quote, What that means is Oliver Stone is chasing fiction. Garrison's investigation was a fraud, end quote. And he went on to say that there wasn't space, quote, to list all the errors and absurdities in the film, end quote. Syndicated columnist George Will says, quote, Stone is 45 going on 8. In his three-hour lie, Stone falsifies so much he may be an intellectual sociopath, end quote. And again, Nicholas Lehman 
wrote in GQ, quote, I know life is supposed to be full of surprises, but I never thought I'd see someone make an all-out effort to rehabilitate Jim Garrison. There are enough good journalists around today who covered Garrison back in his heyday to guarantee that Stone will be called on this. Garrison was a pernicious figure, an abuser of government power, and, a, and the public trust. End quote. And one more. Dan Rather on CBS Evening News rhetorically asked, quote, What happens when Hollywood mixes facts, half-baked theories, and sheer fiction into a big-budget film and then tries to sell it as, quote, truth and history? End quote. Now, that may be well and good that the journalists were calling out Oliver Stone, but in the movie, that is not portrayed as chasing fiction or lies. Obviously, Oliver Stone, being the incredible narcissist he must think he is, portrays his movie as history. He says it's based on real events. It's in the text of the movie before the movie starts. This was based on real events, blah, 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 and all that bullshit. And in interviews with different media outlets, Oliver Stone has compared his movie to the flippin' Warren Commission, which has its critics and has its deficiencies, but in the end, the Warren Commission was the most extensive investigation of any murder in the history of the world, and it answered the question without doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And Oliver Stone, the narcissistic ass, compared his fiction movie to the Warren Commission, and people believed him. And it is a travesty, because the only reason most of my generation believes that there's a conspiracy is because they watched this piece of shit movie. The entirety of the movie is at best leaving out key details, and at worst, it is an outright lie and fabrication presented as fact. I cannot make this point strongly enough. If you watch the movie JFK, you are watching fiction. It says it's presented as the historical fact of what happened. None of it is true. It is gross, and it offends me as, a, as an American citizen and as a student of history. It offends me to my core. I apologize. I'm getting worked up, and I need to move on. So that's JFK, the movie, and that's Jim Garrison, a bunch of bullshit presented as fact. So there's a few miscellaneous details to talk about that will come up in most conspiracy theorists' work, like the myth that there were multiple witnesses to the assassination that have died suspicious deaths. This was first posited by conspiracy author Penn Jones Jr., and he mentions people like Erlene Roberts, who was the housekeeper of the rooming house where Oswald lived. And it's strange that she's mentioned because when she died, she was 61. She had large calcium deposits, a case of pneumonia, and she died of acute heart failure. Hardly untimely or suspicious. He also mentions Dr. Nicholas Chetta, who was the coroner for David Ferry, and Thomas Howard, who was Jack Ruby's attorney. They both died of heart attacks. And... Because of these allegations, in 1967, the London Sunday Times hired an actuary to calculate the odds of 15 of the people Jones listed as having died mysterious deaths in a three-year period after the assassination. And the actuary said that the odds of those 15 people dying were 100 trillion to 1. 
Now, when the HSCA reached out to the paper to get the data from the actuary, they received a letter from the legal department issuing an apology, and they said that the article should never have been published because of a journalistic error. And the error that was made that is often not pointed out by conspiracy theorists is that the actuary was using data concerning named and unnamed people. So to explain it, I'm going to give you the I'm going to give you the explanation that Vincent Bugliosi gives in his book. So the difference between named and unnamed people in these studies. If you were to ask what the odds of a named person that is out of any number of people, what the odds of them getting MSR then the odds would be about 500 to 1 because one in every 500 people get multiple sclerosis. So if you were to say, for example, what are the odds that Brett Bielsma gets MS out of any people in the world, it'd be about 500 to 1. But it's different if you're talking about unnamed people. So if you were to say, what are the odds that any one unnamed person out of 500 will get MS, the answer would be about one to one. It's a basic certainty that if you take just any random person out of 500, one of those people on the 500 will get MS because you're not specifically naming one of the people. So the odds of 15 specific named people from the U.S. population dying in that three-year period is, yes, about 100 trillion to one. But that is not the correct way that they should have studied the suspicious deaths. What the London Sunday Times should have asked, and they admitted as much in their apology letter, they should have asked, what are the odds of 15 unnamed people out of the 2,479 2, people listed in the Warren Commission? What is the odds of 15 unnamed people dying in a three-year period? Now, Vincent Bugliosi, during, during his research, he asked the senior actuary at MetLife insurance company and he asked that question what are the chances that 15 unnamed people out of 2,479 people aged roughly 40 would die in a three-year period and this is what that senior actuary said quote based on the United States life tables from the Department of Health Education and Welfare for the closest years 1959 to 1961 the likelihood that at least 15 would die would be 98.16 percent that is one out of every 1.2, end quote. So in other words, the suspicious and mysterious deaths were nothing suspicious at all. They were basically a statistically expected circumstance. So don't let those conspiracy theorists fool you with these suspicious deaths in the 100 trillion to one chance. That is a total made up journalistic error that should have never been published. Another miscellaneous thing to talk about is the documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. This comes up a lot online. I've seen it a couple times on Reddit and Twitter and have engaged with these people. And it's a documentary where it's, it's fanciful at best, let's put it that way, in terms of being a documentary. The filmmaker says that the assassins, who he says were, there were three of them, were hired on contract by the Chicago mob from the Corsican mob based in Marseille. And they traveled to Dallas, killed Kennedy in a crossfire with the fatal headshot being fired by Lucian, Lucian Sarti from the Grassy Knoll. And this was broadcast in England, I believe. And within days, the French authorities had thoroughly debunked it. 
because obviously they did not want people thinking that three French assassins had come and killed President Kennedy. The three assassins that were named in the documentary were Lucien Sarti, Roger Bocanani, and Sovier Poranti. And at the time of the assassination, Poranti was in the French Navy aboard a minesweeper based in Toulon. Bocanagni was serving time in prison in Marseille, and Sarti was in prison in Bordeaux. So it's going to be very hard for them to be in Dallas to assassinate the president. Yet despite this, there are still people that talk about this documentary as gospel truth, and it has been presented as evidence to the conspiracy community, and after being debunked thoroughly, there are still people out there that will say, well, yeah, of course, they've had 25 years to manufacture their alibis. So you can never get through to these people. And the last quick thing that we need to talk about is Jack Ruby. I don't want to dig a lot into Jack Ruby being a mob hitman or anything like that, even though Jack Ruby killing Lee Harvey Oswald is probably one of the main things that started the conspiracy theories. But it's not really even something that I feel like deserves a large amount of time in the podcast. For one thing, if Jack Ruby was a hitman, he was a terrible hitman. Before he went to the basement of the police department and killed Kennedy, he went to the Western Union office. There was one customer in front of him in line. Now, if there had been two people in that line, Jack Ruby would not have been at the the police station in time to see Oswald transferred and would not have been able to get in to shoot him. So it indicates a definite spur-of-the-moment situation, not a premeditated murder by a mob hitman. The other thing to mention is that radio and television both stated that Oswald would be transferred at 10 a.m., and that was not changed at all in the news. But Ruby shot Oswald at 11.21. The transfer got way delayed. So how would Ruby have... Why would Ruby have not been there at 10 a.m. waiting to assassinate Oswald if he was a hitman? He should have been prepared. If he was the hitman, he should have been there at 10 a.m. and waited around. And yet, he walked into the building way after 10 a.m. and shoots Oswald at 11.21. It just, it's not even worth really talking about. Jack Ruby was a mentally ill, emotionally disturbed nightclub owner who was severely distraught over the Kennedy assassination. And when he saw Oswald in a fit of rage, he pulled his gun and shot him while in police custody and was immediately arrested himself. So this episode has really gotten long. It's the longest episode I've ever ever done, but I think it was important. I could have done seven episodes on debunking conspiracies or more, but I think I hit the main points. I think I've proven that there is no credible evidence to support any conspiracy, and that's the point of this conclusion. I have mounds of evidence that support that Oswald was the lone gunman and that he was working by himself, pulled the trigger, and killed Kennedy. There is physical evidence, there is circumstantial evidence, there is ear witnesses, there are eyewitnesses, there is his killing of J.D. Tippett, there is everything that points to Oswald. There is zero credible evidence to support that anybody else was involved in a conspiracy. And that's really what I have against conspiracy theorists. I don't have anything against people wondering. I don't have anything against people asking questions, but if I present my evidence to you and you come back with, that's not what happened, this is what happened. Okay, prove it. Well, I can't because they're covering it up. 
Who's covering it up? I don't know. They are. The, the, the man, you know, the government. That's, that's just a bullshit cop-out. And that's what happens anytime you try to argue with these people. They present these wild theories that they claim are true, but they don't have anything to back it up. One of my favorite things that ever happened is I was talking about this with coworkers. One of my coworkers said, I feel like Cuba did it. And I said, well, why do you think that? Well, I don't have anything to back it up. I just feel that way. You don't get to just feel that way. You have to prove it. So anyway, there's no evidence, and yet that has not stopped people from accusing organizations or people. Now, here is a list, and I'm going to go through all of this, so bear with it, because I think it's kind of funny, and also it's just indicative of the mindset of conspiracy theorists. Here's a list of all the organizations that have been accused by some conspiracy theorists of being complicit at some point in the assassination. The CIA, Organized Crime, the FBI, the Secret Service, Office of Naval Intelligence, KGB, American Communists, Cuba, Anti-Castro-Cuban Exiles, Germany, U.S. Army, Military-Industrial Complex, Dallas Police Department, Dallas County Sheriff Department, Dallas Morning News, Texas Oilmen, International Banking Cabal, Illuminati, Majesty 12, which is a secret shadow government, The Minutemen, Dallas Oligarchy, Right Wing in America, Mossad, Government of South Vietnam, Red China, Nationalist China, Poland, Anti-Defamation League, French OAS, which is a terrorist group, Renegade members of Hitler's elite staff who fled Germany, Republican Party of Omaha, random, Major Daily Machine in Chicago, Catholic Church, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Martians and Venusians, Americans Council of Christian Churches, Exiled Tsarist Russians, Eastern Establishment, NASA, Defense Industrial Security Command, U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, the Teamsters, and the KKK. Wow. Notice how some of those are complete opposite sides of the spectrum. Like you have some conspiracy theory saying Cuba did it, and then others going, no, it was anti-Cuban Castro exiles. Like, how do you match these up? The CIA did it. No, it was the enemy of the CIA, the KGB. Like, what? And NASA is particularly hilarious to me because Kennedy was the one that gave NASA the funding to go to the moon. He gave them everything they wanted, but they're like, nah, we're going to kill this guy. He's a, he's a real son of a bitch. <laughs> That's just, there's nothing too ridiculous. Conspiracy theorists have accused up to 214 people of being complicit. I'm not going to list all those. And not only that, they have named 82 different triggermen. 82 different people they claim fired the shot. There's no evidence to back it up. They're just competing against each other at this point. And yet the only person they claim didn't pull the trigger, at least some of them, is the one person that there is mounds of evidence for. Like, come on, get your heads out. There's nothing but ridiculousness. My all-time favorite conspiracy theory I have ever heard in my life is from Milton William Cooper. Now, granted, this is not a conspiracy theory that is held to by many people. This might be only held to by the one person, Milton William Cooper, who was a nut job. But the fact is that someone had it in their brain to present this to the world, and it is freaking hilarious. According to Mr. Cooper, America and the world are controlled by the American Council on Foreign Relations and the International Trilateral Commission. These groups learned of aliens invading the U.S., and instead of having an issue with this, they in fact teamed up with the aliens and the Soviets, and they built a secret lunar base. 
Now, at the same time, George H.W. Bush, a member of the Trilateral Commission, began to traffic drugs with the help of the CIA. Kennedy found out about this, and he told Majesty 12, which is a permanent subcommittee of the National Security Council, to clean up the drugs, or Kennedy would tell about the aliens. So members of Majesty 12 decided to kill Kennedy by having his Secret Service driver, William Greer, shoot him in the head. And Cooper says that he can prove all this because he has a special copy of the Zapruder film, which shows this, but of course he won't let anyone see it. <laughs> Someone actually thought about that. And that's the people that the conspiracy community is affiliated with. And also, there's George Thomas, who claims that Kennedy was never shot at all. He's a conspiracy theorist. He was convinced that 22 shots were fired in Dealey Plaza and that five other people were killed, but none of them were JFK. Instead, J.D. Tippett, the police officer that was killed, was actually impersonating JFK, and he was in the, in the limo. JFK escaped and was seen years later at Truman Capote's house celebrating that author's birthday. So this is just... Yeah, on one side, you have the anti-conspiracy group, the small minority, who have actual evidence that can be laid out coherently to show without a doubt that Oswald was the assassin. And on the other hand, you have the conspiracy theorists who have posited contradictory positions, falsehoods, fabrications, and they all did this without a single shred of evidence to support their claims. So I guess in the end, who are you going to believe? That's up to you. But to sum up conspiracy theorists' attitude and disregard of evidence, G. Robert Blakely in 1977 said at a conference in D.C., they, that no one had implicated the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the assassination. And Kathy Kinsella, a conspiracy theorist, responded, quote, Give us time. End quote. And that's what I got for you today. Wow. Huge episode. I hope you stuck around and listened to the end. I had a lot of fun. I don't really care that this went on a long ways because A, important topic, and B, I'm just having fun with the podcast now. I'm going to do what I want to do. I hope that jives with what you want to listen to, but if not, maybe someone else will listen. That's the goal. I'm having fun. Join next time. I'm uh, going to do episode or two on Custer, Crazy Horse, and The Last Stand, and then we're going to go on from there into some smaller episodes, not nearly as long, not nearly as research-intensive, but I think it'll allow me to keep on track much better and bring quality content that you can all listen to and have some fun and learn a few things. I appreciate it. I am Brett Bilesma. I am the host of the Curiosity Chronicles, and I hope that you stay curious. <laughs>